This is an economy of one, your beacon, guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Good evening and welcome again to an economy of one. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, economyofone.com, and economyofone.com is, is our Facebook. Joining me now is Ilya Shapiro. He's a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's provided testimony to Congress and state legislators, and as coordinator of Cato's amicus brief program, he has filed more than 100 friend-of-the-court briefs in the Supreme Court. Ilya, welcome back to An Economy of One. Oh, by the way, before we get started, my understanding is through uh, some of my uh, covert contacts there at Cato that belated birthday wishes are in order. So uh, happy birthday. That's right. The big 4-0, I'm on top of the hill waiting to roll down. Oh, let, let, oh please. Let, let me help you. I got socks that are older than 40. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I wanted to get you on. You're the guy we go to when we talk about the Supreme Court and Supreme Court nominees and and what their 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 uh, uh, positions are, that kind of stuff. Supreme Court has come out with some rulings in the last few days, and I wanted to touch base with you. And I guess the one of the big ones out there is President Trump's executive order on uh, citizens or people coming into this country from certain countries. Where did the Supreme Court come down on that, and and what's your thoughts on it? Right. Uh, to be clear, this was not an order on whether. Uh, or a decision on whether the executive order was legal or, or constitutional. What it did was to put a hold on the lower court rulings that said that it was illegal. There's a lot of double and triple negatives here, but basically okay. most of the travel ban, most of the second executive order with the restrictions on visitors from the, uh, the six different countries, um, most of that goes into effect, uh, meaning there's a carve-out for people who have a, quote, bona fide relationship with an American, meaning something educational or a relative or maybe a business contact, it's not clear. That might be, we might see some court action over the summer about who does and doesn't have a bona fide relationship. But basically, uh, you know, it's unclear who this exactly stops. Maybe uh, Yemenis who are looking to honeymoon in Hawaii or Somalis who are looking to vacation in Disney World or something. Probably not too many people. But anyway, all of that plus the stop on the refugee program plus the continuation of the, the studies and the vetting and all of that. Uh, and the Supreme Court will take up uh, this case uh, of the travel ban in October, right when it gets back. One of your columns I read, and I read it in a couple other places, this executive order, this travel ban, for lack of a better term, going to expire before then anyway, isn't it? That's right. And the Supreme Court asked for further briefing on whether, indeed, the case becomes moot, because the clock uh, starts ticking tomorrow. Uh, on on the travel ban, and most of it is only supposed to be in effect for 90 days, and there's one part with 120 days. Uh, but yeah, that takes us. Uh, it means it's going to be done before the court even hears argument in October. So what ha- doesn't necessarily mean that it moves it because the president could renew the order at any time. There are various doctrines about that sort of thing, but it it could be. And I and I I'm I'm sure that uh, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, especially, and many of his colleagues don't really want to have to take a position on one side or another. They don't want to set the precedent of courts second-guessing uh, executive determination of the national security. On the other hand, they don't want to be doing wading into a political controversy. And if, if, if it seems like President Trump is 
uh, overshooting his bounds, despite what his lawyers are saying. They don't, you know, they really would rather uh, avoid that mess. So I think there's a fairly good possibility that at the end of the day that we won't have a ruling on the merits. That uh, at best they'll kick the case for lack of standing because all of the plaintiffs will now be uh, allowed to have their visas processed for their relatives and their students and that sort of thing. Or it'll be get kicked for mootness and we'll go back to square one with whatever executive order will come in once the studies and evaluations that have been called for by this order are complete. And having lived as long as I have, I can understand not opening, not wanting to open a can of worms, especially if you know there's worms inside the can. So makes sense to me to a certain extent. One of the other cases, and you and I talked about this recently, was Murr versus Wisconsin. That one was a little disappointing. I read your column on that, and you mentioned a phrase I, I've never read before, multi-factor balancing test. What's this ruling? And I think this is one of the more significant rulings myself. Yeah, it's, it's a, a property rights case out of Wisconsin. Look, whenever you see a, a court opinion that uses the phrase multi-factor test or balancing test, uh, reach for your wallet or your constitution because that's in jeopardy. Uh, it, it basically means the court is making it up as it goes along, and rather than imposing some sort of uh, or following a particular rule, uh, it just says, well, it looks to us that uh, after considering everything, ah, we'll go on this side rather than the other side. It's not really uh, the, the height of, of principled judging. In this case, it involved two parcels of land that were next to each other and were owned by the same family, the, the Murrs of Wisconsin. Uh, on a lake, it was a vacation property, or at least one of the um, one of these two plots was developed to have a, a little cabin on there, kind of a recreational thing for weekends, what have you. Um, by the time the parents had uh, 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 bequeathed that uh, to, the, to the siblings, the siblings wanted to expand or otherwise develop uh, the cottage, but they didn't have enough money, so they wanted to sell the other plot of land, which was undeveloped. Uh, but the state of Wisconsin determined that uh, the zoning rules and other kind of both both municipal executive action and uh, state legislative action, combination of things, uh, that prevented them or, or that, 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 that said that that second plot could not be developed. So it's essentially getting rid of almost all of the value uh, of that second plot. And the, the murder said, well, look, you are uh, under, under the court's regulatory takings doctrine when you impose some sort of regulation that destroys uh, essentially all of the value of your property, the government has to compensate you for that. And the state said, look, we're not destroying the value of, of, of your property. You have to take these two contiguous plots together. And if we're burdening, you know, half of it, well, that's, that's tough. Uh, and the court, unfortunately, in a five to three opinion uh, by Justice Kennedy, agreed with the state. Now, one of the uh, things that uh, several of the newspapers in Ohio have picked up on uh, because we have the, the Cleveland Indians here, and, and their logo is, is Chief Wahoo. Uh, Supreme Court, they're, they're looking at the Supreme Court uh, decision on a uh, uh, name of a rock band or something uh, from a trademark, uh, saying those trademarks are protected. Is, is that how you read that? Is Chief Wahoo protected in Ohio now? Yes, yes. Well, Chief Wahoo has been protected, but, he, but he's safe. Here, here's what happened. Uh, an Asian-American rock band called The Slants uh -huh. uh, wanted to register their trademark. They're, they're taking back this racial epithet that, that Asians and Asian-Americans have been called. They're reappropriating it. They're, a lot of their music is 
social and political commentary. They're kind of edgy in that way. But the, uh, the trademark office denied their registration, citing a provision in the federal trademark law, the Lanham Act, uh, that prohibits registration of so-called uh, disparaging trademarks. Um, you know, what is disparaging? It's kind of subjective in the eyes of the trademark examiner. In fact, there's a whole slew of trademarks that have been registered that are a lot more offensive than, than, than the slants. Um, but anyway, nevertheless, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled uh, that this particular provision violates the First Amendment. That is, the government shouldn't be determining what's offensive and not. And moreover, trademarks are not government speech. Uh, government can certainly restrict its own speech and, and regulate it. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there are so many trademarks out there, and it's not that the U.S. government endorses, for example, both Coke and Pepsi and a, a whole host of uh, uh, messages, some of which probably aren't appropriate to uh, talk about uh, uh, at a family radio program like yours. But, but nevertheless, that should be the judgment of the, of the marketplace and, and, not, uh, and not of the government. And so because of that, the Washington Redskins, whose trademark had been actually deregistered a few years ago during the course of litigation, uh, they will now be safe. Uh, and so um, uh, the Chief Wahoo and anyone else, again, you know, uh, organizations, private clubs are, are free to change their logos if they come under social pressure or what have you. Uh, but it's not the government coming along saying, you know, you're not going to be able to use that. You know, there's some of us just kind of shake our heads over this. I understand the ruling. I agree with the ruling. But uh, I kind of shake my head. Is really is, is that the most important thing the Supreme Court can do for this country? But uh, you know, free speech is is tantamount. I understand that. Finally, Ilya, we got about a minute or so left, um, and I I forgot to bring the paperwork uh, in with me, so I'm kind of kind of ad libbing here and going from memory. But it's, uh, I remember uh, reading that uh, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas and Justice uh, Neil Gorsuch. Um, essentially put out a, a letter or an opinion uh, essentially stating that the Supreme Court needs to hear more cases or have more rulings on the Second Amendment. I mean, what uh, that was kind of unusual for me. What, what were they were they talking about? Well, the Supreme Court had a few uh, petitions asking it to take uh, the ca a case involving over the years there have been several of these, many of these. This one came out of uh, California uh, about the right to carry under the Second Amendment. So in 2008, almost a decade ago now, the Supreme Court says that you uh, struck down uh, a complete ban on owning firearms uh, for self-defense in the home. Mm. Uh, but as Gorsuch and Thomas put, surely the meaning of the Second Amendment isn't limited to being able to carry your gun from your bedroom to your living room. What about the all of these states, uh, notably California, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, where it's essentially impossible to get a license to be allowed to uh, carry a gun outside the home? And the Supreme Court, whether before Scalia died, uh, now has, has refused to take up these cases. It's really, I agree with Gorsuch and Thomas, it's a travesty. Anyway, the court, again, declined to take up this case. It takes four votes to take up a case. They did not get the four votes. And Gorsuch and Thomas uh, talked about how this is a travesty. In the Times and Teller, the court, they wrote, took up, has taken up 25 free speech cases, 24 uh, Fourth Amendment cases, and zero Second Amendment cases. So it really is, uh, the Second Amendment is effectively a second-class right. Yeah. Uh, it's, are you feeling pretty good? I know I am. Are you feeling pretty good about Justice Gorsuch so far? <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, he's a real deal. Uh, he's rapidly becoming my favorite justice. He he writes well. Uh, he's passionate about he, what he believes in. 
Um, and uh, and he's a textualist. Uh, you know, he just comes out in his writing. Why can't we just uh, start and finish with what the actual text of the law says? It's, yeah. uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, terrific. Uh, we've been speaking with Ilya Shapiro. He's a senior fellow, constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Ilya, once again, this has been very informative. I'm glad we're able to tap into your expertise on on these cases in the Supreme Court. I will update your bio to 200, friend of the court, and uh, uh, I'll project it ahead. I'll say 250 next time I introduce you. So uh, once again, thank you so much for your time, and uh, as always, uh, belated happy birthday. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Coming up next, in addition to uh, some positive Supreme Court decisions, some positive uh, executive moves out of President Trump. We'll talk about those next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, in addition to some of the positive stuff coming out of Supreme Court this last week, and there was some negative stuff, which we talked to Illy about as well, I've seen some positive executive order activity out of President Trump. And the first one is uh, change in the language of EPA regulations. Now, you may recall, geez, a year or so ago, well, it's been a couple years ago now probably, that the EPA changed their rules as to what their jurisdiction is from navigable waters of the United States to simply waters of the United States. Now, what that did essentially gave them jurisdiction over everything, everything on private property. And we've seen cases, we've seen stories of uh, farmers putting in a pond and getting fined tens of thousands of dollars uh, because they didn't get permission from the EPA first. Mud puddles, I mean, anytime there's any type of water on land, the EPA felt they had jurisdiction over it, essentially all of your private property. Well, when President Trump came into office, the first thing he ordered was to look at the impact, the economic and social impact of a lot of these regulations that, that were put into place. And as these audits or studies came back, he's been making changes. So while, while everybody's talking about fake news and, and CNN and Russia and, and that kind of stuff, uh, President Trump and his uh, administration is, is uh, slowly moving forward and getting some of these things taken care of. Uh, the, the EPA rule was um, particularly significant to me from the standpoint that uh, I have a creek uh, on my property. It starts on my property, so it's very, very small. It's certainly nowhere near navigable. Okay, You can't navigate anything in this, this stream. But I have... Uh, acreage where I grow things, including uh, many, many fruit trees that I do uh, spray with chemicals for um, uh, insects and for fungus on the fruit and that kind of stuff. And I just knew sooner or later, some busybody was going to come by my property and see me spraying my trees and uh, sick the EPA on me because uh, that stream eventually, now it takes 
a long, long, long time, but eventually that stream does flow into uh, Lake Erie. And uh, people drink out of Lake Erie uh, for their, their everyday water. So it, it was a, a good thing to see the word navigable put back in that waters of the United States is simply too broad. It gives the EPA way too much power that uh, allows them to essentially control your private property. By the way, this is the same, same EPA that dumped millions of gallons of toxic waste in a river in Colorado and five days later made the statement that, yeah, we did that, but it's pretty much all cleared up already and had very little environmental impact. If that had been you or me, uh, we'd still be in jail. And we'd be in jail uh, forever because of that. But the EPA, when they screw up and make a mistake, um, no big deal. No big deal. It's been taken care of. It's been dispersed. Uh, No environmental impact whatsoever. But if you have a pond on your property... Uh, that could have a huge environmental impact. So um, it, it's good to see this kind of stuff happening. We also saw some stuff out of Congress about uh, privatizing air traffic controllers. Um, so th- things are getting done. Things are getting done. You want to pay attention because important things are getting done. These are things that will have impact. The press doesn't cover. Media doesn't cover because it's not sensational enough it doesn't uh uh make the headlines uh look as good as russian probes do but uh to you and me in our daily lives very important coming up next i speak with uh professor rob nadelson we're going to talk about the convention of states very interesting going to happen this fall in arizona gary rathbun an economy of one to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Professor Rob Nadelson. He's recognized as the country's leading scholar on the Constitution's amendment procedure. He's a senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence at the Heartland Institute and the Independence Institute, where he also heads the Article 5 Information Center. He's author of the original Constitution, What It Actually Said and Meant, a book I have at home. Uh, Rob, welcome back to An Economy of One. It is wonderful to be back, Gary. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. You know, uh, uh, my producer, she's always on the lookout for stuff. And and, uh, in the last week, we got uh, some more information about, uh, was it Wisconsin or Minnesota? Somebody joining into the uh, Convention of States that's going to happen in Arizona, I believe, this week. this September, and I said, you know what? We we've talked to you before about this. I want to want to refresh our memory. Let's start out with some of the basics. Uh, what's the difference between a convention of the states and a constitutional convention? Okay. Well, a convention of the states or convention of states mm-hmm. is simply a a gathering of representatives from the states. 
um, it's kind of a diplomatic gathering, the way you'd have um, the way you would have uh, ambassadors meeting together. Okay. Um, a constitutional convention uh, it is organized for the purpose of actually writing a new constitution. I think the last time we talked, I brought that up because I, I had real mixed feelings because I wasn't clear on what it was. And I felt that uh, opening up Pandora's box there to change the constitution uh, might be a really bad thing. And of course, you explained it to us. Now, the, the Convention of States, the the proposal of an amendment to the Constitution. Uh, am I understanding this right, that it's only one amendment at a time? Well, the Convention can propose as many amendments as are within its agenda, okay. but they have to be relevant to the agenda. This is one of the rules that has existed for Convention of States for hundreds of years. They're limited to, they're limited to the agenda. So, for example, uh, the the cause, the proposed amendment, which is now the most popular among the states, is one for adding a balanced budget to the Constitution. About 27 states have endorsed that. Okay. Um, presumably, the convention could propose more than one amendment, but they all, all would have to be targeted at a balanced budget. They couldn't, for example, propose an amendment on uh, changing the writ of habeas corpus or saying that federal juries can consist of only six people instead of 12 people. They have, they are, they are, they're limited by, um, by their agenda. Now, there is another movement which has picked up the endorsement of 12 states, which is called the Convention of States Movement. It's a little confusing, but uh, they, they specifically want uh, a convention to consider three items, uh, term limits on federal officials, reductions in the size and scope of the federal government, and fiscal restraints like a balanced budget amendment. And so obviously they would, they would probably propose more than one amendment, but they would still be limited the, to, to, the, uh, to the prescribed agenda. So, for example, they couldn't uh, start fiddling with the Bill of Rights in a way that reduces people's protection or increases federal power, because that would be outside the scope of their uh, their their authority. So if if we have seventy five percent of the the states sign on, uh, uh, thirty eight states or something like that, we we have them sign on to either of these amendments or groups of amendments. Uh, what happens next? I mean, Congress doesn't have to approve that because that's an alternative to Congress uh, approving amendments. If if I'm understanding this right, what happens? After the Convention of States, and if we have a uh, the the right number, a quorum, or the the seventy five percent, or or whatever, it's a it's a it's a great question. Here, there are three majorities to keep in mind by this procedure. The first majority is two thirds. That's the number that you actually need to trigger a convention. So, okay. thirty four states in this instance would have to agree that we want a convention to consider, let's say, a balanced budget amendment, or we want a convention to consider term limits or whatever. Once uh, they do that, it's then incumbent upon Congress, and there's, Congress doesn't have any choice on the matter, Congress goes ahead and calls a convention. In other words, they say, you know, you, you, you states have act, asked for a convention on a term limits amendment. Well, it's going to meet in Chicago, Illinois on, 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 on January uh, 19th, 20, uh, 2018, and the initial meeting will be in, 
I don't know, uh, City Hall. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so that's the nature of the call. And Congress does that by a majority vote of each house. The third majority to keep in mind is the three quarters. And that's the number. Well, actually, let me back up. The convention itself can propose by a majority of the states on the floor. And then if they propose an amendment, uh, Congress then decides uh, by a majority vote, do we want to send this amendment to the state legislatures do we, or do we want to send it to the state conventions? Whichever one they choose, three-quarters of the states have to approve it. So there's that three-quarter uh, system. So you've got this – the idea here, Gary, was to make – the process difficult, mm-hmm. but not hopelessly difficult. So that's why you've got all these different votes. Now, uh, that being said, okay, then it becomes a, an amendment and, and off we go. What's, what's, what's happening this September uh, with the state of Arizona? I mean, is this a, a uh, uh, practice run? Is this a simulation? Is, is, is this real if they get 34 states to to sign on? I mean, can something come out of this September? This is not an amendments convention. Um, This is called the planning convention, which is actually the nickname for it that I suggested. The purpose of it is to consider in advance uh, some protocols or rules or procedures in case we do wind up with a convention for considering a balanced budget amendment because the balanced budget people were so close. Mm. So the planning convention is going to look at two big issues. One is what city should we recommend to Congress that it be held in? Now, now Congress is going to choose the place, and knowing Congress, it might be no Alaska. <laughs> but, but in, I would in assume, January. In January, right. But, but I, would assume, I would assume that this planning group would, would make a recommendation to Congress. The other thing that they uh, want to do is make a recommendation to the convention as to what rules the convention should follow. You know, 100 years ago or 150 years ago, these conventions happened all the time. Mm-hmm. And so somebody who, would, who was uh, going to be a commissioner or a delegate to a convention might have done it before, or he might have know, known people who did it before. But because we haven't had a convention for a while, the, the idea is to kind of de- get our ducks in a row and become re-familiar with the process. But w- one other quick thing on this. We have had some regional conventions in the 20th century. We had one as late as 1949. But this one that's going to occur in September in Phoenix is actually the first national convention of the states since 1861. Wow. But, it, but it's just a planning meeting. Now, what happened at the, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call it a convention, uh, last September, September 2016, uh, wasn't there uh, a, a simulated convention or, or uh, a, a get-together to propose amendments? or what, what happened then? Okay. Well, you remember I mentioned a minute ago the group that calls itself the Convention of States Project. Right. Right. Uh, they're the ones who want term limits, reductions on the size and scope of the federal government, and fiscal or financial restraints on the federal government. They, they said, you know, a lot of people have questions about this process. Why don't we actually invite state legislators and people who are involved with, uh, with pu- public policy from the different states to come together? We'll, uh, 
they asked me to write the rules for them, and I wrote the rules. I didn't invent them out of my head. They were they were based on the history of prior conventions, uh, and um, and 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 there were up to three commissioners. That's what they're formally called. Up to three commissioners from each state. Most of them state legislators, and they actually considered in committee the first day. Uh, a number of constitutional amendments. They, uh, the committees recommended eight of them. The next day, uh, the, um, the entire convention, voting by states, uh, decided to recommend six of the eight uh, after some amendment. So this was a simulated convention. Okay. It, it actually, it was great, Gary, because it was it was just like a le- like a legislature. I mean, it all these people kind of fell into it right away. They forgot it was a simulation, treated it like a real thing, and everything went almost flawlessly. Um, and it was held uh, actually in October in Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. So some historical historic environment. You know, you say that, it makes me smile thinking, you know what, the true spirit of America can still be grasped out there by participating. You yeah, know? it was. I, I remember thinking, because I'm standing there at the back of the room watching these proceedings, yeah. and I'm saying, this is easy. I mean, this, <laughs> this is a group of people here, all of whom have political experience. It's like sitting in the legislature of, of the lower house of any state. They're making motions. They're following procedures. They're obeying the rules. You know, why haven't we done this decades ago? <laughs> no, nobody calling each other bad names or no. wanting to kill them or anything like no, that? No, I yes. mean, there were a few robust debates. Sure. Um, but it was, a, it was a great experience, and, and it was kind of an eye-opener for a lot of people. Yeah, I got about a minute left, Rob. I, I want to ask, what can we do? What can my listeners do? What 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 can we do? I mean, I, I don't want to be, and I don't want all of us to be a, a spectator in the stands and reading the, the articles afterward. What, what can we do today? Okay. First, ask yourself, would I like to see changes in the way Congress or the federal government operates? What would I like to see? Would I like to see a balanced budget amendment? Would I like to see term limits? Uh, would I like to see a single subject rule in Congress? Or, or, or maybe all of the above. And then based on that, you can choose the organization that you can get involved with. So, for example, there's the Balanced Budget Task Force. been around a long time. Uh, BBA for USA is their website. You know, get onto there and, 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 and sign up. Or if you prefer a broader agenda, try the Convention of States. Or go to the U.S. Term Limits site. Um, if you're kind of on the left and you'd like to have campaign finance reform, go to the Wolfpack site. That's a group that's promoting a convention for, for campaign finance reform. So um, you, you decide what you want and then hook up with the group that is uh, closest to your agenda. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I wish we wish we had a little more time. I got a few more questions. So uh, hopefully we can tap you on the shoulder uh, uh, again soon, because this is interesting to me. This is this illustrates to me a comment I make over and over and over again that, you know, our founding fathers, while not perfect, were really, really smart. They were, and they knew they were. They knew that the Constitution wouldn't be absolutely perfect and would need to to change. And that's why they put the amendment process in. Excellent. We've been speaking with Professor Rob Nadelson. Uh, Rob, once again, real treat for me. I appreciate all the work you do. I read a lot of your your articles out there. And of course, I have your book, The Original Constitution. And uh, can't wait to see how this plays out and and, uh, chat with you again soon. Thanks, Gary. Coming up next, one of my all-time 
favorite people. It's a shame that he's gone. But we're going to listen to a tribute to our flag, since it is 4th of July weekend, from the immortal Red Skelton. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, we, we get a lot of criticism. There is a lot of criticism out there from time to time about the Pledge of Allegiance. I've known a lot of people that refuse to, to say the Pledge of Allegiance anywhere, anytime. They're not going to pledge themselves to a flag and, you know, real noble. I, I, I just don't care. Um, I understand that under God was added to it in the 50s, <clears throat> you know. Don't care. Um, I think it's it's worthwhile um, to think about what that pledge means, what it means to be a citizen of this country, what it means to to uh, to have a Fourth of July, have an Independence Day, and uh, it's almost ironic in this day and age that more people are working hard to be dependent on the government. They want their retirement money taken care of. They want their food. They want their health care taken care of. I mean, these are the same people that fought against slavery, but they got no problem or or say they abhor slavery, but they got no problem enslaving other people for their causes or their entitlements or their desires. Um, Red Skelton was one of my favorites as a kid. We always sat down on Sunday night, watched the Red Skelton show. And uh, it was uh, a bygone era. There was never any embarrassment. You never had to worry about what the kids heard. I was a kid at the time, so my parents never worried about what I heard. He was the consummate gentleman and and, uh, comedian in a a bygone era. Uh, I wrote an article recently for American Thinker where I referenced Red Skelton, and I got one of the the higher daily comments. or my reference in that article. But I had my producer go out on the internet and find uh, a little four-minute thing that that Red Skelton did talking about the Pledge of Allegiance when he was a kid. And so this was done in the 60s, I believe, maybe the 70s. And uh, it's his rendition and his explanation of the Pledge of Allegiance. Enjoy. I remember a teacher that I had. Now, I only, I went, I went through the seventh grade. I went to the seventh grade. I left home when I was 10 years old because I was hungry. And I used to, this is, this is true. I work in the summer and I go to school in the winter. But I had this one teacher. It was the principal of the Harrison School in Vincennes, Indiana. To me, this was the greatest teacher, a real sage of, of my time, anyhow. He had such wisdom. And we were all reciting the Pledge of Allegiance one day. And he walked over, this little old teacher, Mr. Laswell was his name. Mr. Laswell, he says, uh, <clears throat> he says, I've been listening to you boys and girls recite the Pledge of Allegiance all semester. And it seems as though it's becoming monotonous to you. If I may, may I recite it and try to explain to you the meaning of each word. I, me, an individual, a committee of one, 
pledge. Dedicate all of my worldly goods to give without self-pity. Allegiance, my love and my devotion to the flag, our standard, O oh glory, a symbol of freedom. Wherever she waves, there's respect because your loyalty has given her a dignity that shouts freedom is everybody's job. United, that means that we have all come together. States, individual communities that have united into 48 great states, 48 individual communities with pride and dignity and purpose, all divided with imaginary boundaries yet united to a common purpose and that's love for country. And to the Republic, Republic, a state in which sovereign power is invested in representatives chosen by the people to govern. And government is the people, and it's from the people to the leaders, not from the leaders to the people, for which it stands. One nation, one nation, meaning so blessed by God, indivisible, incapable of being divided with liberty, which is freedom, the right of power to live one's own life without threats, fear, or some sort of retaliation, and justice, the principle or qualities of dealing fairly with others for all for all, which means, boys and girls, it's as much your country as it is mine. And now, boys and girls, let me hear you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Since I was a small boy, two states have been added to our country and two words have been added to the Pledge of Allegiance under God. Wouldn't it be a pity if someone said that is a prayer and that would be eliminated from schools too? I want you to have a great day. Be self-reliant. Be an individual. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. (laughs) 